0: So, last week, we finished up Paul's introduction, and this week, we're going to actually look at the theme of the book of Romans, and that's what Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 are about. Paul has introduced himself, and now he's kind of putting, for lack of better words, his thesis out there, so for those of you that know much about, uh, writing a paper, you have to put the thesis after you introduce what you're going to talk about. Who's writing? Um, and so the thesis should entail everything you're going to talk about from that point to the end of the paper. And it includes how you get there and, and all those things. So the Apostle Paul is putting forth his thesis here in verse 16 and 17. He wants the church in Rome, to know this. This is the most important thing to him. And so, as we think about this, remember, I'm not going to go into much detail today, because a lot of these themes are going to keep coming up. The the Apostle Paul is, when he writes, he continually brings back these ideas, these thoughts. So there will be some detail, but it's not going to be near as much as we see, because The Apostle Paul is going to show us what the Gospel is, especially in the first four chapters of the book of Romans. He wants us to understand the Gospel. And so, when we come to verse 16, if you don't forget, in verse 15, Paul says, I am eager to preach the Gospel. Eager to preach the Gospel to those who are in Rome. And then in verse 16 it starts with for. Again, I think I mentioned this last time, but this is when we see the word for, we need to think about what was before it and why he's saying this. Why is he eager to preach the gospel in Rome? Well, number 1, and most importantly, he says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel." I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why in the world would Paul be ashamed of the gospel? You may ask that question, like, how is that possible? Why why would he have to say this? Because there are people in his time and up until today who are ashamed of the gospel. Why? Maybe it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's turn there. I... It's very interesting that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 and following, Paul uses a lot of the same language we see in verse 16. So I think it's really important for us to see the reason why many are ashamed of the gospel. It says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So, if you think about verse 17 of Romans, those who do not believe. But to who? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think about this. Does God's power have a limit? He's saying it is the omnipotence of God. That's what he's saying. The word of the cross is the omnipotence of God. And then he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside... That will I set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I heard a sermon on this uh, a couple of weeks ago, a really good one, and it, it just reminded me that we there will be no one in heaven who said, I thought about this for a long time and I realized through my wisdom and rationality that Jesus was right. There will be no scholar who says, I studied all these books and all this, and I found out that the Bible was right. No. All who are in heaven will have to say, Christ, open my eyes. Because in the wisdom of the world, the cross is foolishness. So if Paul was to be ashamed of the Gospel, it's because of the reproach that he gets from preaching the Gospel. Paul sees that the message preached, the Gospel that he is preaching is foolishness to the world, but it pleases God to use that. It pre- pleases God to use the preaching of the Gospel to bring out, bring about salvation. Verse 22, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. So, the Jews are looking for, oh, so, show us the sign of Jonah or... You know, give us a sign that you're the Messiah. And what did Jesus say? He said, is this not enough? Am I not enough? Because they wanted wanted some kind of um, experience. And the Greeks, they just want you to to lay it out. They want you to argue them into the faith. And that doesn't work. Why? Because there's somebody around the corner who's ready to argue you out of your faith. Faith comes through hearing and hearing of the Word of God. So they're looking for wisdom, but in 23 it says, but we preach Christ crucified. This is not a popular message. Why? Because for those who are perishing, it is foolishness. But to those of us who are saved and being saved, it is the power of God. To the Jews, this message preached of Christ crucified is a stumbling block. Why? Because it goes against what they believe, that the law saves them. And for the Greek, it says, sorry, I lost my spot, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. They, They don't get it. This doesn't make sense. How does all this make sense? And so, it's easy to see how someone could be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24 it says, But to those who are called, or the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. I mean, we can look around this room. It's like the Apostle Paul saying, you're not here because... You're famous. You're not here because you're someone in power. You're here because God called you. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So, God has chosen you, He's chosen me to shame the wise. Not because we are something great, not because we are something incredible, but because God is Loved, God chose us to show the world that He can transform the lives that the world thinks are worthless and useless. Verse three thirty it says, or twenty eight it says, The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. This is the gospel. We have nothing to boast of. When we walk out of this room today, we don't have anything to boast about. We can't walk around and look at me. I am. No, Christ called us. And this is why the gospel should be open to all men. It wasn't given to us because we were something, it was given to us because He loved us. He called us. And He has brought us into His kingdom. Verse 30 just clarifies this. But by His doing. Whose? God's. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, Boast in the Lord. I think these two passages, Romans 1, the end here, and uh, here in 1 Corinthians, are so intertwined that the, Paul is saying a lot of the same things. He's just saying it differently. So if you turn back to Romans chapter 1, so it could be easily possible that Paul could feel ashamed because, I mean, Paul was considered a scribe. Uh, he was a chief of the Pharisees. So to the Jews they're like, what's wrong with you Paul? Why are you preaching this gospel? And two, he was half Jew. So his he also had these relationships with the Greeks and the Gentiles. And they're saying, Paul, you're a fool. Why would you want to become a Christian? Why would you want to follow that that myth, that's what a lot of people think of, of Christianity. And Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of that Gospel. It is purposeful. The Gospel for Paul and, and for us should be what he says in the following. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Again, the Gospel, according to Paul, and I believe, The Bible is the power, the omnipotent power of God for salvation. No one will come to Christ without hearing the Gospel. That's what I'm saying. They can live in the world, and we see clearly, later on here in in chapter 1, he talks about how the creation magnifies God and speaks of His glory, but if someone does not hear the Gospel, they will not become a Christian. Period. So if we think that we can just live a life and never share the gospel with someone, I'm not saying we don't live a life, because that's when the question comes, right? They're like, why are you so different? And then we share the gospel. So my question, I didn't deal with this in chapter 1, or the first few verses, but I want to address a little bit, what is the gospel? Again, Paul is going to lay it out. The, the book of the first half of Romans is all about that. What is the gospel? But I want us to see um, what the gospel is. So Paul didn't just come up with this word out of nowhere. He didn't just say, hmm, I like the word good news. That's what it means. He didn't say he didn't just pull it out of nowhere. Actually, he got it from verses like Isaiah 41. 9 through 11. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll just read it. But he says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. That word there, same phrase. It's two words in English, but it's the same idea, Gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's good news, right? The Lord is coming. He's talking to a people who are completely lost. This is a prophecy about the Messiah who comes to bring His reward, to bring the good news that the, the Father, the Shepherd will come. He will care for His flock. He will gather them again together. He will gently lead those that are with young. And then if we turn to Psalm 61, 1 through 3, it says, we've all heard this verse. I don't think anyone here can say they've never heard this verse. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is a prophecy of Christ. This is a prophecy of what Christ has come to do and what He has called us to do. The Great Commission is just a transferring of the authority of Christ in the world upon us to preach the Gospel. So, he goes on to say, And He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are captivated by sin, those who have been broken because of their sin, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified so Paul is not just Picking this idea of the gospel out of nowhere as we talked about in the the first message paul's gospel came from the Lord and this gospel is not new it's not new to Christ it it was before and that's why the new uh, the Old Testament saints will see in heaven why because they were looking forward to the Messiah they were looking to the fulfillment of these prophecies. They knew this was true and they believed it. And it was reckoned to them as righteousness. And that's what uh, Romans chapter 4 is all about. He uses the example of Abraham and David to prove that this Gospel is not new. It's not new to the New Testament. It is fulfilled in the New Testament. The promise is fulfilled, but these promises... Faith in those promises is what justified these men in the Old Testament. So what what is the Gospel again? I, I really like, there's a little bitty book. If you want a digital copy, I can actually send you one. It's just called What is the Gospel? It's a really good book by a pastor named Greg Gilbert. Um, and it's just a little bitty book, but he, he addresses what the Gospel is. And I think it's something we have it's easier for us to think we know what the gospel is and we forget what does the Bible say about the gospel. And so he, he came up with four questions that I think are very helpful for us. To, we need to answer if we are to understand the gospel. So the first question that he, he asked is, who made us and to whom are we accountable? Who made us and to whom are we accountable? God, Right. To him we are accountable. Our sin, our whatever it is, we have to give account to the Lord one day, right? Two, the second question: What is our problem? Or in other words, are we in trouble and why? So we have to, we need to answer these questions. If we're sharing the gospel, these are questions that we need to think through. And the and Paul answers all these questions very interesting and, and the majority of, of the, the preaching you see in the book of Acts answers these questions as well and then the third question is what is God's solution to that problem how has he acted to save us from it and then last how do I Myself, right here, right now, how do I come to be included in that salvation? What makes this good news for me and not just for someone else? Because if we do not believe, we are perishing. It is not good news, right? It is only good news to those who believe. So, if you wanted to to break these questions down, the first one addresses who God is. God. The second one is us. What is our problem? Man. The third question addresses Jesus Christ as Savior. And the fourth question is how will we respond as believers? And he has a a very short summary in this this, uh, overview chapter that he did. He says, first, the bad news. God is your judge and you have sinned against Him. That answers the first two questions, right? And then the Gospel. But Jesus has died so that sinners may be forgiven of their sins. So that answers the third question. How do we find hope? And then the last part is, if they will repent and believe in Him. So that that is the Gospel encapsulated, I mean we could talk about the gospel for months and still be talking the gospel is such a incredible gift of the lord but uh so if we don't realize that god is our judge and that we have sinned against him then it doesn't matter we can't give good news to someone who doesn't think they're a sinner right this is the same as if you if you say i have the cure to to stage 4 cancer and you go up to somebody that doesn't have cancer are they going to look at you and be like hey you can go give that to somebody else i don't need it but if the day before they got a a, a diagnosis that they're going to die tomorrow and you walked up to them i i guarantee you, give me that i believe it give it to me and that's the thing if we don't deal with sin If we don't realize that God is judge and creator, and that we have sinned against Him, the gospel is useless. But when we see that the gospel is hope, when God opens our eyes to our sinfulness against Him, then we can say, oh, I see why Jesus had to die. I see why He had to be fully God and fully man, and why It's only in Him that my sins are forgiven and that I have to repent, turn from my sin, and believe in Him. If we don't understand the Gospel, how will we share it with others? This is important because if if we believe what Paul is saying here in verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation. So, if we don't understand the Gospel, we need to understand it. Why? Because there are people that we love who are dying and going to hell. And if we don't know the Gospel and aren't able to share it, it doesn't mean that we have to follow some formula or follow, you know, if you take them down the Roman road, they'll understand. The Holy Spirit is the one that opens the hearts, But if we are not diligent to understand the Gospel, how can we share it with others? And it affects us. If we don't understand the Gospel, it affects the way we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. It affects the way we treat the lost. Because we expect them to be like Christians, and they shouldn't be. I don't expect an unbeliever to see the problem with some sin. You know why? Because they don't understand the Gospel. They don't realize that God is the judge. So, again, I, I, I see here that he's not ashamed of the Gospel because, we can put that in the place of four, because it is the power of God to, for salvation. Some people want to stop here. They don't want to read the rest of the verse. There are some people who believe that anyone can be saved. But Jesus says, Paul says here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to everyone who believes. And he's going to hammer this out even more in verse 17. If you do not believe, you will not be saved. That's that's the end. There is no other way. Saying the right things, doing the right things, does not save anyone. That's a gospel that um, honestly, has been around for ages. That's a gospel that uh, I actually downloaded or, or printed off something from uh, the 1600s, actually late 1500s, when the Catholic Church wanted to make sure that they responded to the the understanding of justification by faith. This is these are some of the things that they said. So I, I want to read some of these because. This has not changed. The Catholic Church has never renounced these statements. And for those who are wanting to join hands with the Catholic Church, I want want to warn you, I'm not saying that there aren't believers. I would would dare say that there are priests who who believe in justification by faith and deny these very things. But, that being said, that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. So, one of them is, if one says that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because that he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified but he who believes himself justified, I know this is a lot of... uh, I will translate. (laughs) And that by this faith alone, absolution and justification are effected. Let him be anathema. This this denies what I just read. It actually denies verse 17 most of all. It denies that but the righteous man shall live by faith. Or that the righteous man, the just, shall live by faith. Because they are saying that you cannot believe that you are absolved of sin and justified before God only by faith. That's what it's saying. If you want to read it again, I have a copy I can give you. It also says, If anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound of faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinant, let him be anathema. I don't think that needs much explanation, but is is that good news? I don't want this gospel. I don't want a gospel that tells me that I can't be assured of my salvation. That doesn't mean that we, we have to live a holy life. I'm, I've already talked about that. So, but if you say that you are assured of your salvation, that God predestined you, you're to be cursed. That's what anathema means. Another one, these are all in a row, so I'm not like just picking out a, a bunch of ones that I don't like. For anyone that says that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he has learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. I would say, are they referring to special revelation as the Bible? Because if so, then I'm good, right? (laughs) Because they're saying that you can't be assured of preservation, that the Lord will preserve you. If this was my gospel, I would be losing hope every time I read this. Or I'll read the last one here. It says, If anyone says that the man who is justified and and how perfect soever is not bound to observe the commandments of God and of the church, but only to believe, as if indeed the gospel were a bare and absolute promise of eternal life, without the condition of observing the commandments, let him be anathema. I don't know exactly what they mean, but it seems that what they're saying is unless you obey, unless like if you just make a statement of faith, if you say you believe and you don't work out, if you don't live and obtain merit or by works obtain, then you're wrong. And this is a gospel that has been preached for ages this didn't this didn't start in the early church this was in time this started and and there are still denominations that are not catholic who believe you have to have you have to be baptized to be saved and that's not true that's what the catholic church believes but it's not in the bible that doesn't mean that we don't get baptized right baptism is a, a command of christ and is God has called us to obedience. Our obedience is not to earn salvation. It is obedience is the result of a desire to obey God. It's the result of the Holy Spirit within us. So when we are following God, it is not to earn our salvation. There was way more than what I just read. I mean, you could spend all day reading. This was the Council of Trent is where this came from. Um, And... All these statements, there are good things, but then they clash with others. And it doesn't make sense. But the Gospel is, through faith, in the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ. i was just thinking of Isaiah 52.7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's the Gospel. Our God reigns. Christ died. He rose again. And He has victory over Satan. He is reigning. And we can bring our requests to Him and know that He hears us. Without faith, we cannot be saved. And faith in the gospel. Faith is essential to salvation. If you hear someone say it's, it's a, a principle of salvation, you need to figure out what they mean. Or if they say it's one of the, the priorities of salvation, you need to find out what they mean. Because if they don't believe that faith is essential to salvation, they are believing another gospel. And if you don't remember... The Apostle Paul said, if anyone, even an angel of light, preaches another gospel, including myself, Paul indicates himself, if anyone preaches another gospel, what does it say? Let him be accursed. Same thing, anathema. So if there is someone preaching another gospel, we need to be careful. I know this isn't a popular message, but if we are not careful... We will not only shipwreck those who we know, but we'll shipwreck ourselves. So, the Apostle Paul, again, back to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel for it. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And I would say this means The Lord, if you look at Paul, again, I I mentioned this last time, Paul would go to the synagogue first, and when they kicked him out, he would preach to the Gentiles. They rejected the gospel. Paul said, okay, the Gentiles want to hear, so I'm going to preach to them. There were some Jews that believed, and this was all the apostles. They would start in the synagogue, and when the synagogue said, "Ah, we want to stir up trouble, we want you to get out of this town, then they would preach to the Gentiles. And so, God showed priority to the Jews, but that doesn't exclude the Greeks. In this case, I believe when He says also to the Greek, He's referring to the Gentiles. And so, the Gospel is for everyone who will believe. It is not determined by the color of your skin, the nation you're from, um, what your economic background is, it is without distinction for those who God has called. I have seen people who have little to no education in Guatemala that love the Lord and are serving him and can barely read. Actually, I know I, I knew a man that he could not read at all. But he loved the Lord so much. This man had nine kids working in the melon fields, and he would sometimes when he'd come by he would drop off melons or um, eggplant. One day he dropped off a rooster. We weren't sure what to do with it. <laughs> so he had to make some soup with it. It was pretty tough. Uh, but, but this man, he had his, his daughters read him the Bible every night because he couldn't read. And he would quote, like when I would talk to him, he would be quoting the Bible better than me. I'm like, where did you get that from? He goes, da-da-da, this verse. I'm like, like he was committing to memory without even reading the Bible, the Word of God. Because it was everything to him. I think sometimes we're ashamed of the Gospel. We're ashamed because we're afraid of what people will think of us. And this is myself included. I'm not uh, pointing fingers. But how many times have we... Felt the urge, and we've sensed that the Lord called us to share the gospel with somebody, but we rejected it because we thought we we didn't think they would like what we had to say, or we felt the need to share the gospel with a group of people, or or with family, or friend, whoever the group was, and but we were ashamed because we don't want to be labeled as those people right we want we want people to think that we're great and i I, again i told i told this i think the first week we talked about this like it's so much easier to share the gospel in louisville because i probably won't ever see those people again but when it comes to shelbyville there's a good likelihood i'm going to run into those people in the store or wherever we're, we're at so my question for myself and my my um Charge to myself is, Lord, help me not to be ashamed of the gospel. Because without the gospel, men will not be saved. Without the gospel, none will come to know Christ as their Savior. And then verse 17, we're, we're moving on. Again, Paul says, For, what's he referring to? It says, For in it, What is it? The Gospel. So we can say, for in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So, it's the power of God because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. In the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is not a new thing. If you want to look in Psalm 98, verse 2, it says, The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. See this? Salvation and righteousness interlinked. They're they're used almost the same. He's made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness. When God reveals His righteousness, we see salvation. Or verse 46. Isaiah 46, 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Isn't that interesting? Paul, or the, the prophet Isaiah, is, is using the two terms as though they're the same, that they are intertwined. Or Isaiah 51. Verse 5 and 6. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. And the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be Dismayed. Paul is tying these two ideas together: that when we see the righteousness of God revealed, salvation is coming. So, what does he mean? The righteousness of God. There's a lot of uh, opinions about this. What does he mean? And that really, the two opinions that could hold sway are: one is that righteousness, which is imputed, or given by God to the believer. It's righteousness that God gives to the believer. Or the other is the righteousness which is God's own righteousness, His attribute of righteousness. I tend to agree with the first one. I tend to think that he's saying that this righteousness that comes from God is is not His attribute, but it is a righteousness that God is revealing to us, and I say that because it says from faith to faith. So, it is revealed from faith to faith. And then further confirmed later on here. But the righteous shall live by faith. So, what is Paul, Paul saying? He's saying the righteousness of God, that righteousness that only comes from God, that righteousness that God alone can give to man... That, that is the power of God. We cannot earn our righteousness. We cannot try to be righteous on our own. We cannot go up steps and say a certain number of our fathers and pay a certain price and say, I'm going to make it. If you've been to Rome... I haven't, but there's a a set of steps there that if you go up on your knees, that's what I'm referring to, if you go up on your knees, at the bottom they have a sign that tells you how many indulgences you earn, which an indulgence is merit that you you earn so that you don't have to go to purgatory. So if you go up on your knees and say a certain number of Hail Marys and in our fathers, then when you come back down, You've got all these indulgences stored up to take away your sin. Your meriting salvation. But our righteousness is of God. Paul is so clear. There is nothing in the New Testament that teaches that we can earn our salvation. This verse, verse 17, transformed men like Augustine. I, I talked about this. Augustine and Luther were they perfect people? No. Luther said some stuff that I would never agree with. Okay, <laughs> there's things that he doctrines that he upheld that I would not agree with. But in, when it came to this, this is what changed his life. He was a monk. He was sitting. He thought that by cutting himself off from the world and and just focusing on God and and by doing penance that he would make it. But every time he did it, he had less peace. And he couldn't figure it out. And then one day he was reading, um, reading this passage, and, and he kept being questioned, like, what does this mean? What does the righteousness of God and, and the righteous man shall live by faith, the just man shall live, what does this mean? And then God opened his eyes, and he's like, oh, all that I've been doing has been trying to earn my salvation. I I have made the righteousness of God of no value. I have made Christ of no value because I'm trying to earn that. And when he saw that, he said it was like he was born again. It was a total transformation of his understanding of the Gospel. God imputes the righteousness of Christ upon us. And this idea of imputation is he puts it on us and then verse verse um, 17 at the end it says, but the righteous sh- man shall live by faith. Your translation may just say, but the righteous one. That's because the, the word righteous here is actually an adjective for those of you who like language. Um, it's an adjective acting like a noun. It's acting like a noun and so it's in Uh, The masculine form. So it can say man. But it can imply those who are righteous. So this adjective is this idea of righteousness or just is the idea that we are justified. And so many of you know this. I'm not saying anything new. But it's a legal term. It's It's not a moral term necessarily. It is a legal term that that means declared righteous. They live by when we live by faith, we are believing that we are righteous. We are believing that God has made us righteous. We aren't living the same that we did before Christ. We have been transformed because we see that God made us righteous in one moment. It's not as the the Catholic Church teaches, that you start in faith and then you add works. Because we have to be fair. They do believe in faith for justification, but they add works. Because to be fully justified according to Catholic teaching, you have to be baptized. So you start the process of justification, but once you are baptized, then you come to be fully justified. But you can lose that. You can lose your justification. And so then you have to do merit, do penance, so that you can regain that justification. Which just doesn't make sense. How can God declare you righteous and then say, "Nope, sorry, I'm taking that away. You're not righteous anymore. When God declares us righteous, it will not change. That doesn't mean that we go and live how we want, because when we are declared righteous, God is saying, they're mine, they are righteous people, and I will continue to work in them to bring them to completion. So we will grow in godliness. We will desire to follow after God. But our righteousness has nothing to do with how we live afterwards. Our righteousness was imputed from Christ on us by faith. The interesting thing is, faith is not something we can obtain on our own. Faith is given by God through the Holy Spirit. That is a part of the regenerating work. And I want us to look really quick at the book of Habakkuk, because this is where the quote, but the righteous man shall live by faith, comes from. So we can get a better understanding of why why was paul <coughs> sorry why was paul quoting this verse because he doesn't he this this verse is quoted 3 times in the new testament twice by paul and then whoever wrote the book of hebrews quoted it If you're having a hard time finding it. I won't hold it against you. So Habakkuk, Habakkuk one, Habakkuk is complaining to God. He's saying, "God, why are you allowing injustice to be done?" And we see that um, in verse one through four. He's saying, "The law is ignored; justice is never upheld." For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. He's saying, there's no justice in the land. He's talking about the the people of Judah. And then God replies. God replies and He says, Look, I understand. I know what's going on. But I have a purpose. I am raising up a people, the Chaldeans or Babylonians. and, And I'm going to send them to bring My justice upon the people of Israel. Specifically, the tribes, tribe of Judah. Southern Kingdom. And then, Habakkuk complains. He's like, Lord, why? Verse 13, he says, Why are you silent when this wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? They're saying, Okay, maybe I was wrong. These the the people of Judah are are wicked, but I mean the Chaldeans are way worse. So why would you allow the wicked to swallow up the less wicked? And and God is saying, look, that is none of your business. This is my my work. And then he, and then he talks about yes, they they will bring justice, but I will take care of them. That's that's after the verse that we're going to read. I I am going to use them to destroy the wickedness of Judah, to take them away from their home, but in one day, I will restore. And so, after he has complained at the end of verse 1 about God using the wicked to swallow up the righteous ones, or the people of Judah who He would also agree we're wicked. It says in verse 1 I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. So he's expecting the Lord to reprove him. That's pretty interesting. Like the Lord is going to say something to me that I don't like and is against what I just said. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision. What vision? It it would seem that the Lord has given him a vision of what is going to happen, of the Chaldeans coming, destroying Judah, and that there will be a restoration of the people of Judah back to their homeland. And inscribe it on tablets. So he doesn't want this just to be oral. He wants them to keep it written so that they can know uh, what this vision was. And he doesn't want him just to write it on tablets. He wants him to be very careful so that even the one who run, reads it may run. So apparently, I, I guess he wanted giant text. You know, make sure it's nice and big so that you can run and read it at the same time. I don't know uh, what that expression is. But um, he'll make sure that he those who are running can read it. And then he says in verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. So it's, it's a long way off. It's something that's going to happen. It says, it, it hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For I will certainly come, or it will certainly come, it will not delay. And I don't know, is it possible that Habakkuk saw a vision of the Messiah? I don't know. There, we don't know that from the context. But it's possible. But he's saying, look, judgment is coming, it's not going to be pretty. But remember, God will restore that there's going to be difficulty. he says in verse 4, behold, as for the proud one, the one who thinks, oh, I'm, I'm great, I I don't need to listen to this vision, his soul is not right within him. He's going astray. He's... He's relying on his own works to believe, to think that he will be okay. And then verse 4, the text that is quoted, but the righteous will live by his faith. This is what Paul's quoting here. And and we kind of get a better understanding of why he's quoting it, because he's saying, The proud ones, they think they're going to be okay when the the promise comes. The promise of destruction. But what's going to happen? They're going to be destroyed. But the righteous one will live by faith. His life will continue because of his faith. It is not based on his works or who he thinks he is. It's the righteousness that is given to him by God. It's the exact same uh, word usage that Paul uses. And so Paul wants to make sure that we understand that our righteousness, our just being just before God is His work. It is God's work. It is through the blood of Christ. And that is what the entire first four chapters of Romans is about. He is about to tell us what our problem is. Then He's going to address what our hope is and give us examples through like Abraham what and how we are justified. So it will give us hope. It will give us an understanding of what the Gospel is. Because if we're not careful, we'll lose sight of the Gospel. We'll lose sight of who we were. Many people who walk away from the Lord Forget what they were before Christ came into their life. Before they saw the hope of glory. And then they're like, they go back to the world and they're not as bad as they were before, so everything's okay. And that's not okay. I, I want to read, and we'll probably read something from this at another time, but um, there's a, a, I really like the first chapter of this book. It's called the cost of discipleship. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he talks in the first chapter about costly grace. And I, I want us to see how he contrasts costly grace with cheap grace. And he says He says, that is what I mean we mean by cheap grace. The grace grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from our tolls of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Now he's going to tell us the opposite. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave their nets and follow Him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You were bought... At a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. That chapter is really good if you ever get a chance to read it. It's a really I don't agree with everything he writes in this book, but this chapter, he's writing in the time of the church joining Hitler. I mean, he was a German pastor and he had to go underground to teach others because he wouldn't agree to follow Hitler and the regime regime there. And he's seeing what we see today that people... They want grace, but they don't want a life lived with Christ. They want they want the gospel, but they don't want the ugly parts. And we cannot deny the doctrine of justification. I, I can't say it enough. In a world that is constantly, and even there are evangelical leaders who are trying to make amends with the Catholic Church and say, Well, we, we agree on essential doctrine. And I'm telling you, what the Catholic Church says about justification by faith is not the Gospel. And I'm not saying that we have to believe in justification by faith to be saved. No, because that would go against what this says. Our righteousness comes by faith, right? It's not faith in the justification by faith. It's in faith in the blood of Christ that was purchased for us. But this is explained by justification by faith. And that's why I, I wanted to teach the book of Romans because it encourages me to reach the lost. It encourages me to see who I am without God. And it makes me rejoice in who God has made me and who God, what God called me from. And I hope that as we go through the book of Romans that we're encouraged not only to share our faith, but to build ourselves up in our faith cuz i want to see every one of us make it and if you are if as time goes you realize man i am not i i didn't understand the gospel i need to be born again great we're not going to judge you because you grew up in the church and you thought you were okay we're not i would much rather you know that you are born again that you have been justified through the blood of christ than you to sit back and say, well, I'm afraid of what people are going to think because I grew up in this and I missed the point. So I I pray that we're encouraged that Christ is our hope, that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, and that our righteousness is from God to those who believe what I have to share today and I I pray that God has spoken uh, in the midst of imperfection. So let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to be with us. Father I thank you that you are gracious to us. That you did not spare your son. You didn't Value him so much that you would not send him to die for us. But Lord, you, you loved us and you sent your son to die so that we, wicked, unrighteous people, could be made right with you. Help us not to forget the wrath that was upon us, that we were enemies of God, and that only in Christ, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, that it's only in that purchased our blood, our, our righteousness, purchased us from the bondage of sin. Father, I pray that You would help us to continually remember that our righteousness is of God and that it's only by faith that we are justified. Forgive us a hunger and thirst for Your Word, we pray. A hunger and thirst to know you and put in us lord a desire to share what we know who has saved us with the world around us the people who are dying every minute without you just praise you for this lord and trust that you will be with us in jesus name